Hello, listeners. It's a pleasure to welcome you again to Not Knowing About Poetry, a time for talking about poems at the very limits of our capabilities. As usual, I'm Joel, and it's a real pleasure to be joined today by Lucy Burns, who is talking to us from Great Yarmouth. Do you want to say hello, Lucy? <laughs> hello. hello. Good to have you here. Our contemporary poet for today, Sarah Howe, is another one of the writers who gave me early inspiration to start thinking about the way writers today respond to early modern texts. As much as her writing speaks widely to the present moment in many ways, Howe is also a scholar of early modern literature with a dazzlingly successful academic career, which is itself a remarkable counterpart to her wider acclaim as a poet and critic. Yet from the written discussions I've read of Howe's output, um, I'm not sure I've seen many comments on her use of writing from the 16th and 17th centuries. So I think Lucy and I have got some interesting, valuable work to do today in contrasting her with some early modern texts. So just to give you a bit of info about Sarah Howe, she was born in 1983 in Hong Kong to a Chinese mother and a British father. She studied English at Cambridge, uh, doing uh, a BA, then an MA, and finally getting a PhD in 2011, nearly, a, nearly 10 years ago now. After a string of high-profile research fellowships, she's currently lecturer in poetry at King's College in London. When she was still a PhD student, she published her first collection, a certain Chinese encyclopedia. Actually, I think that's maybe more of a pamphlet than a collection. It was then followed by A Loop of Jade in 2013, a collection which went on to win the T.S. Eliot Prize in 2015. So although Howe is in some ways still a young emerging poet, she is also someone who's got an established reputation and uh, you know, is clearly building up this body of works, which is very interesting to, to look into. All right, so getting ready for our particular task today of looking at a poem by Sarah Howe. Um, part of her appeal as a poet is that she wears her academic learning relatively lightly. And as intelligent as her collection Loop of Jade is, how does not overwhelm us with the literary history that she could very easily overwhelm us with. Today, we're gonna to be focusing on one of the moments where she talks about reading specifically and makes that a theme. But her writing, aside from uh, books and reading, very prominently thematizes the role that the material of the past plays in the consciousness of the present. One dramatic instance could be in her writing about her mother, who late at night will begin to talk without prelude or warning about her growing up, telling stories with a pause-pocked, melodic, strangely dated hesitancy and halting intonation. So even when we're not talking about early modern texts, there's a, a complicated, um, you know, possibly tense, possibly anxious relationship with the, with the lived past as well. Just as in uh, Zafakuniel's poem, Prayer, which we read uh, a little while ago, the mother's, and in that poem, the mother's ring represents the promise of complete intimacy and communication across generations, cultures, language and history. And at times it seems a little bit like how maybe talking about something similar. For example, when her poems discover a weighty amber ring in her mother's jewelry box, that's at the very start of the collection, A Loop of Jade, or when that jade bracelet is thought to protect her as a child. Yet the poems surrounding them suggest that any kind of loop or any kind of ring or any kind of connection um, is a challenge and a problem more than that 
perfect cycle that a ring seems to suggest or propose. So let's get started, not with how, but with an early modern text. And our first one today is not a poem, unusually for this podcast, but a letter written by the courtier, soldier and poet Sir Philip Sidney, who's perhaps most famous for his work uh, on the sonnet sequence Astrophil and Stella, uh, which in fact was a staggeringly influential sonnet sequence that inspired many, many, many imitations in, in the 1590s. Uh, he also collaborated with his sister on a landmark metrical version of the Book of Psalms and dedicated to her a major work of prose fiction called The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, we'll mourn that soon. He died aged 31 while fighting in the Netherlands, and it's quite remarkable that what I'd now think of as a relatively young um, person actually managed to do quite astonishing things with poetry in their life. Puts us to shame. Absolutely. <laughs> I think Sarah Howe puts us to shame as well. <laughs> yeah. but, um, Philip Sidney puts us all to shame. So we're going to look at a letter from the very moment of his, of his leaving the world when he was on the battlefield at Zutphen, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, wounded, looking for help. He wrote a, a letter in Latin, which I think was then translated into Dutch. And we are now going to read that poem in a, trans, in a modern translation in English. So it's not an authentic early modern text in English, but uh, I think this is probably the best way to read it because my Latin and Dutch are a bit uh, more um, lacking. Um, do you fancy reading it, Lucy, or shall I give it a go? I'll go for it, sure. Okay. Way of mine, come, come, I'm slipping away from life and I want you. Neither alive nor dead will I be ungrateful. I cannot write more, but beg you urgently to hurry. Farewell, Arnhem. Yours, Philip Sidney. All right, so a tiny little letter. Hardly mm -hmm. even there. Such a short note, but quite evocative as well. Yeah, and it's also interesting that it contains, I mean, it, as, as you said, it's this note written as he's, presumably on, on the ropes, um, <laughs> but it's still a note that it announces itself as a note. I cannot write more. <laughs> this will sort of have to do. Just dashing off a few lines. Um, please hurry to see me. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I suppose that that gives you that immediacy, doesn't it? Like, it makes me think of those 18th century novels with, with Pamela or Clarissa, like urgently writing these long and um, difficult letters about the things they're going for. But with, with this one, which let's just assume it's authentic, um, you know, it's, it's limited by the, the circumstances in which the writers are finding themselves, yeah. that there can't be any pretense of immediacy. Um, yeah. Maybe this, maybe this is all part of a performance, I don't know, but um, if, if so, it's a very, very carefully orchestrated one. And maybe part, I mean, maybe part of this kind of evocativeness or immediacy of the poem as well comes from what feels like a, a kind of intimacy in it that we, yeah. we're getting captured in this one little moment. Um, I wonder, do you, do you agree? And where do you think something like intimacy could be found in this in this letter? Well, I think it's in, it's difficult because you said at the start, you know, we don't have a, a poem this week. We have we have a letter, but we're we're not that far away from a poem or a lyric poem in that we have that like neat address, I to you, um, 
And I think the intimacy is in, you know, when you take the content out, well, when you take, I guess not the content, the context of um, someone, Sydney writing as he's dying to someone else, like probably one of the most intimate moments you could share with someone. Um, but it, I think it's really in the in the language in that first line we have. Well, I'm calling it a line. Come, come! I'm slipping away from life, and I want you. Like out of all of the people that Sydney could conjure in those in that moment, he picks uh, where. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, isn't it? I want you. Um, like whether you place the emphasis on the wanting or yeah. the you. True. Um, the the importance of Sydney's own desiring or yeah. the importance of desiring Waya. Um, and it's a really frank, like that, that use of the word want, like considering how composed the rest of the letter is, you know, with this like, you know, I'm sorry, I cannot write more, <laughs> you know, because I'm dying. Like, but the immediacy of like, I want you, it's not like I would quite like you to make your way here <laughs> and i guess i mean this is maybe this is where we have to be just a little bit careful because of because it's translated right and um you know i don't i don't i don't know enough latin to really be able to say but you know latin does have a kind of immediacy sometimes in its, in its verbs and, and things that yes. maybe if you translate would, would sound out and sound more frank than it's maybe intended but it's i mean but it's there and um you know, I want you. It's, it's it's very difficult to read that, even if it's translated from, uh, you know, a slightly different verb, you know, without, um, you know, that early modern suggestion of uh, a really close male friendship that, that could border into a, a homosexual relationship. Yeah. Um, a kind Especially of with the come come in the first line as as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's unavoidable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, you know, and I, I don't know, it's just, it's almost in every word, you know, you're absolutely right. And I mean, we could go for way of mine. That's the first, first two words. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that doesn't sound to me like a conventional um, start to an early modern uh, letter. Um, a lot of early modern letters can be very, very formulaic, very, very um, bureaucratic, but, but already that gives a kind of hint of a friendship. Um, I am slipping away from life that that gentle progress um you know makes me think of the, the dun um valediction forbidding morning as um virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go um there he is slipping away and maybe trying to shore up some defense against it against it yeah um and if there's some sort of love in there you know neither alive nor dead will i be ungrateful um so it's a nice it's a nice moment of like sort of christianity sounding like something yeah. quite positive like you, if you believe in a, an eternal life um then you can you can continue being being grateful for for your for your friendship forever even if where comes and he's dead um it'll be it'll be good enough yeah, and also, I, I, I see your reading, and I think that's the, the the kind of the right reading. I had initially read that as Sydney saying, "I want you alive or dead, <laughs> nor dead." Like <laughs> in whatever state, I just have to have you with me, sort of thing. <laughs> but I think yours is the is, is the is the right way to go with that. 
Yeah, I I think so because I think he doesn't want Wayo like brought to him on a. Uh, <laughs> I think he does. <laughs> body. No, I think you're right. I think he's saying like whether you get here and I've already if I've, and I've already died, still thanks. Yeah. Um, and you know, even that final word, well, before before the the signing off of farewell, um, like while the while the letters urging urging this this meeting urging this encounter, the farewell, yeah, it's it's signing off the letter, but it's also potentially, you know, signing out of life as well, yeah. admitting that this this meeting might never ever ever happen. Yeah. And with the yours at the end, sorry, I've just realised like the mine and the yours is a nice little, like yeah, I guess kind of joining of their of the two of them. That is even yeah, because even obviously yours is is absolutely conventional, yeah. but it is a little mirror, isn't it? That um, you're mine and I'm yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not it, like you say it's not. It's difficult because it has, uh, on the one hand, it has all of one or some of the conventions you expect to see in a, in a letter, but it also has a few things that are, that are just a little bit unusual. Mm. Yeah, and I get, and I mean, I I have you know I've I've read quite a lot of early modern letters just to, mm. from a, a scholarly interest, and um, maybe I've just read a different kind of letter, but this isn't this isn't normal stuff I think it's maybe um in fact in some ways maybe more normal to us now where we're used to kind of reading letters or diaries as an intimate um form of communication of, as a form of um private communication um which which couldn't be guaranteed quite so much in the, in the 16th or 17th centuries at any at any point that's an in, that's an important point I guess that he had no guarantee well presumably yeah he had no guarantee that someone else wouldn't read this Right, no, and it's yes. Yeah, well, I think you know, we'd have to do a little bit more work mm. in the in the books to sort of know about the status of the letter. Um, but yeah, I, I think maybe correspondence wouldn't be quite as would would often be not as private as as we would have it. Mm. But I love it. Okay, but I think this is a really interesting start. And this is, I mean, just to be clear, this is a text that Sarah Howe sort of sent us back to. This isn't something I know about, or I had, I was able to conjure up some some background knowledge to off the cuff um, it's it's really interesting that this little this little text has kind of been identified and explored by Sarah Howe um, because it's so out of the way um, but should we should, I mean we, we haven't spent a long time on that but should we sort of push on to, to Howe and just see how we get on and come back if you think um, we need to do some more on it yeah, I think so. Yeah, and we can perhaps come back to it as we get to the end of the poem if we need yeah. to. Okay, so um, from from Weyer, mine, come, come, to Sarah Howe. So we're going to look at her poem called The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia. Uh, and this appeared in A Loop of Jade, that 2013 collection, but it was also uh, printed in, two th in 2013, early in 2013, in PN Review um, as part of a, a series of, I think, five my poems. Um, and as I, I mentioned a couple of things about um, Sarah Howe's relationship with history in this book, which is, you know, interesting context. Um, but what we're going to look at in, in the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia poem is one in a series of moments of reading that she might not, um, that might not be a part of her own life, 
but are kind of brought into this bigger narrative, um, which I think is interesting. So, for example, um, there's a poem about Ezra Pound reading Confucius. Um, there's a poem about Jesuits in China um, quietly and studiously discovering the interest of, uh, of Chinese uh, script. Um, there's also maybe one moment of more personal reading is, is when she talks about her copy of Shakespeare and catching a fly in it, which is quite a funny poem, actually. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the humour of her interactions with reading is also shown in a poem called Human Marks, uh, which isn't in a loop of jade, but uh, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about uh, as we go along. Um, so we're going to have a look at the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia. And I think there's there's maybe a few more sort of scholarly annotations that we're going to have to put on this. But I think let's get the text out there. Let's start talking about it and see what we get to. So, the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia. P.S. 1554 to 1586. Yesternight, the candle scarcely struck, and yet its fizzled premonition held sweet captive, to a warped page that will never love ink. Beware the then, and the penman's matachin, suddenly undone, all gored thigh and selflessness. Reading is a reaching, a sister's grief, handspans groped across the dark. Benny, Benny. Dying is such thirsty work. And like, it's, it's really cool to read that again, because I'm just reminded of all sorts of little points that we've, we've got something to say about, you know, that nice little motto, reading is a reaching, we'll definitely need to explore that. That little statement of veni, veni, that's of course the Latin for come, come, taking us back to, to the letter. Um, but maybe we'd be most responsible by starting at the title and and yeah. work through. Um, so do you know anything about the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, Lucy? No, and I, I actually have to admit that, I mean, I really liked your point at the start about how, how where's her reading and her scholarship likely, because I think that's true insofar as like the references and the texts and the, and the literariness is like so well embedded in the book. I mean, this might be a kind of disclaimer about myself, my, myself as a reader, but it's so well embedded that I think you can kind of get away with like, with not knowing about the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia on first reading. So I didn't know anything about that. I read the poem um, and had some thoughts and then I moved on to the next one. And it wasn't until kind of um, we, we spoke about it briefly that I guess it, other parts of it came into focus. But no, I have no... No, I've never read Arcadia. I didn't know who Philip Sidney really was, other than the fact that, <laughs> that you and Laura work on him. <laughs> no, neither, neither of us work on him. Oh, God damn. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, but so, I, I mean, I have to admit as well, The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, it's, it's not a work that I'm, I'm really familiar with. I've read bits of it and I've read about it, um, but it's a long, long prose text. Um, kind of a pre-novel because it's a you know it's a work of fiction it's not a novel but it's a long work of fiction oh, um, poetry is it not 
it's not poetry there's poems in it but it's a it's a it's a it's a long bit of prose and it it like Astor Phil and Stella which was a massively popular bit of poetry this was a massively popular bit of prose and it's it's well known for uh readers annotating in the margins all over the place for taking notes for for reusing parts of it um but also I think it's it's maybe interesting to kind of divest ourselves of that knowledge as well, because if you just think of it as the Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, that, that for me, the sort of the evocative word in the title is Arcadia, right? That we've got a person, the Countess of Pembroke. Um, okay, we, we, we know now it's Philip Sidney's sister, but we, we don't necessarily know that. Yes. Um, we know there's a, there's a woman and we know that there's this Arcadia, this kind of pastoral um, sort of paradise, um, free from the fears of the world, fear from the problems of politics. Um, is this where she lives? Is this her utopia dream? Um, is it something else? It suggests all of those things. Yeah. I'm sorry, Lucy, I stopped. I think I stopped you from saying something. No, just that you're, that we're, you're right in the, in the title. I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here that people would know that Arcadia is a, is a text, whether or not they know anything about it, but that having that in the title immediately puts us into the into the world of like of being interested in reading um, yeah. before we've even gotten to the poem and and yeah and found out what's kind of happening. Yeah, and if, and if, yeah, if you if, if you've identified this as a as a text, uh, then then yeah, you, you you know it's a poem about reading, and I think it's interesting as well that the underneath I just read that out as it was on the page. P.S. fifteen fifty four to fifteen eighty six. P.S. is Philip Sidney. Not Which I read as postscript. Right, like quite reasonably because Sidney isn't these days like the the, the most hot poet. Um, but maybe it's but maybe that's a point to note that the poem is if you look at the notes um the poem is dedicated to um let me just i'm just checking my my book and i can't find it now yeah it's it's dedicated itself to um gavin alexander mm. who, uh, a, a major sydney scholar in cambridge maybe um. maybe one of the today's leading I think that's fair to say, um, who I assume would have had, you know, a positive, um, you know, senior academic relation with, with, with Sarah Howe when she was there working on 16th century texts. So the PS 1554-1586, to a lot of readers, you know, okay, whatever, but yeah. actually that, that's a marker of kind of a, a scholarly intimacy in, in the present as well, that yeah. If you're if you're mates with Gavin Alexander, you know you know who you know who Sydney is. Yeah. And the only other thing you can do with that date with those dates um, is look at how short the lifespan is, um, and kind of re reflect on that. I guess. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, and I guess so. Is it, is, it a, is it a memorial to Sydney? Is it a, is a gesture towards Scalavat Gaffey and Alexander? Um, but okay, we've got a lot of things in the title and the the kind of little inscription underneath. Um, where 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 do we get to then when we start the poem properly after after those things? And we have this first stanza: Yesternight the candle scarcely struck, and yet its fizzled premonition 
held sweet captive to a warped page that will never love ink. Well, the first thing that the first thing I see is is someone reading, <laughs> um, is someone striking a candle or trying to, and it's scarcely striking, and then of holding this candle, this the fizzled premonition to a page. Yeah. I think that's like the first kind of um, image, I guess, but it's when, it's then when you, when you like um, dig into it that I, that I think you have um, a few different scenes of reading. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, sorry, you go. Yeah, yeah I think, I, th I think that's, that's a nice way of, of, of condensing it. I was, I was more confused, but I'm, I'm less confused now. <laughs> Um, and maybe, and maybe that sort of that idea of a scene, a scene of reading, um, it it does remind me of sort of um, Baroque paintings, particularly like this 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 artist Georges de la Tour, um, who does these paintings of uh, like really dark scenes with a candle, with some books, with a skull. Um, so there's something very enclosed here in this in this scene. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that is in contrast with the title, you know, the idea of an Arcadia as kind of a green, lush, um, maybe utopian landscape. But the sound, the sound of this stanza, it's not, it hasn't put us in an enclosed space. Mm. I don't know what's, I don't know why the candle would scarcely strike. It, maybe they're outside, maybe um, it's damp, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but we've gone from, you know, green, green pastoral, openness to to absolute darkness to yeah, the, yeah to the, the candle I imagine it's, it's like kind of pitch black and there's like moments between the candle nearly going yeah. yeah and I like and I mean I think it's interesting that you put it out as a as a scene of reading which is like the sensible option but it also said it could be a scene of writing as well couldn't it yeah because of the the line um Okay, so the lines, I'll just read them all. It's fizzled premonition held to a warped page that will never love ink. Um, and I'm trying to figure out fizzled premonition. I'm just trying to imagine like lighting one of these, these old candles made out of goodness knows what. Um, the fizzled premonition. I'm, I'm, what I'm imagining is now a, a kind of a drop of wax falling on a page. Um, because I can't see what else would work there. It's fizzled premonition held to a warped page um, that will never love ink. Now, when I hear warped page, I think of, of books of, of, of early modern paper, which would be often, usually I might even say, thicker than the paper we'd, we'd expect to find in, in contemporary books, and which when uh, subject to, to compression and, and humidity does warp, um, and if it's got wax on, is it that is that what's rejecting the ink? If you you if you oh, of wax onto the page, uh, does that mean you're not going to be able to write on it? Okay, but my but the, but the, but the interesting thing is that it's a it's a page, not a if a warped page feels to me, and I might be wrong, like a book, not a single sheet, um, which you would use to write a letter on. But even if it is a book. It's a book that's being used to to write in or to to imagine writing in. Yeah, yeah. So we have, I guess, 
we have three possibilities there. We have the walk page of the letter, which is what, I guess it wasn't what I first thought because I didn't know about the letter when I first read it. But I, I, I can see that walked page as Mary Sidney's reading this letter. Um, and it's warped by time and travel and tears or whatever. It's also the warped page, like you say, of uh, uh, by the sounds of it, as uh, the book that you would write in in the early modern days. But it's also the warped page of Arcadia, right? This text that has, <laughs> again, it's difficult to, to read without, uh, without thinking about it in the context of some of the other scenes in the book of a scholar pulling off a, a dusty old book from the shelf. Mm. Um, yeah. And like a warp, yeah, a warped page, because it obviously it's, it's, you know, it's a material image. Um, and I like, I, I like the way you've thought of different, you know, we, yeah, we can think, we can actually think of different ways that that's a material image, not just the book. Yeah, the, the little fragment that's been brought back from, from, from the battlefield could just as well be, be warped in some way. Um, I don't know, but it just warped seems like such a funny, it's a, it seems such a material metaphor that like, I'm trying to make it like a, like an idea of literature, like, oh, here's this warped literature, here's this, um, you know, poetry that's full of warps and bends and twists and turns. It doesn't quite work, though. I don't feel quite happy sort of making that claim. Well, how was Arcadia received? Well, very, very um, uh, enthusiastically after it was printed in 1593. Um, okay, but interesting stuff. And like yesterday, yeah, so, so what we, we started talking about this, this sort of letter, even though that stanza doesn't explicitly say that. And maybe, maybe it's, 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 it's that first word of yesternight, this archaic term for yesterday, yesterday evening. Uh, which, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? That that's um, an interesting word because it marks her sort of thinking, trying to kind of create a, a, a a sort of pseudo early modern vocabulary, but one which is still accessible to, to a modern reader. Yesterday, we can obviously understand that. Um, but who who's this? Who is this speaking? Who is it talking to? Who are they talking to? And I suppose by yes, yesterday night, it, it it makes the speaker. It's not the the poet. That's a kind of clear thing because the poet would never say. Well, maybe I don't know. I've never met Sarah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she says yesterday all the time, but. It feels like there's a, it's putting a distance between the author and the the poem in a way that a lot of the poems don't don't want us to do. Mm. Um, you're you're right because now I hadn't thought of that, but looking at the at that first stanza to have we've got yesterday and we've got fizzled and also warped. Those words feel like they're from different times and different worlds and different voices even. Um, so I think. Um, yeah, I think that's important given kind of what happens later in the poem, um, thinking about different voices interrupting. And that's the same actually for that sweet captive, which we haven't mentioned, I think, because it's so difficult and I, I don't quite follow it. But that just appears out of nowhere um, as like an interruption and it's in brackets. Um, it's, it's like an aside uh, and I can't really make any sense of it. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it sounds to me um, and again, this is a kind of research that I should have should have done and didn't. It sounds to me like a like the sort of thing you would say in 
um, a sonnet sequence. Um, it's the sort of thing, um, you know, you might describe yourself as if you were um, enthralled to some remarkable mistress. I've just tried, I've tried to do a really quick search of like sweet captive in poetry and it doesn't look like it is actually a... Um, the only thing I found was, wasn't sweet captive. Where am I? It was just captive. It was in Shelley's um, Epipsychidion where, where it's like a caged bird whose sweet song, etc., etc. Um, poor captive bird. That's the, the quote I've written down. Interesting. But yeah, it's odd. It's like it's a, it's another, it's another voice in the, in the poem, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And it's slightly, and it is slightly difficult. And maybe this is true of a lot of, of house poems. It's slightly difficult to read the tone exactly, but it seems very, <laughs> it seems very poised, very, um, you know, e elegant, you might even say, for something describing this little fragment of memory from, from yesterday. Yeah, considering kind of how ephemeral the memory is. Yeah. Um, it's very, very, um, eloquently expressed I, I don't mind that but it's, it's just slightly hard to judge the the tone is is there an urgency here is there um desperation not not really sure I think it's like I think it's um I like your word poise I think that's right and and, and I think it, another kind of word I would use to describe it is delicate and then thinking there yeah. about the form that people obviously cannot see unless they look it up online whether the, the words are, are jumping across the the page and they're, they're like placed very, very carefully. And I liked it when you read it, you therefore read it very carefully. Um, there's, I, yeah, there's a there's a real like, I think po poise is, is the right word, which yeah. side note is odd when we get to the, the ending. Yeah, and actually, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't always like going to town with sort of the spatial yeah. arrangement of things, but like, if you read those first three lines, and two of the lines are just one word. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it could be one straightforward sentence or it could be like yesternight, the candle scarcely struck yeah. and yet it's fizzled premonition held, sweet captive, to a warped page that will never love ink. It, it, it feels like there's, you know, there's, there's a movement of pace um, yeah. and emphasis. And a mirroring of the of like three attempts striking a match, right? Candle scarcely struck. <laughs> Were they using matches in the 16th oh. century? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not. I'm genuinely not sure. Um, oh, I mean, obviously, they use candles and tapers. I'm not. I'm not sure how they struck them. No, okay, let's try. Let's try and have another go. The second stanza, because I think it's you know there, there's so much here. Um, it's really interesting. So our second stanza to remind you, so we've had this first stanza, which is kind of a scene of reading or writing um, of, of perhaps isolation in contrast to, to the, the promise of an Arcadian scene. The second stanza, beware Zuthven and the penman's matachin, suddenly undone, all gored thigh and selflessness. And is this where we maybe want to bring in a little bit of sort of historical background? I think so. Otherwise I think I think it's tricky. I mean Zutphen is the is the first one 
the first yeah. word you know anything about. Well, let's, okay, well, I'll read a little bit from the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, which gives us kind of a succinct paragraph. So um, what uh, I think H.R. Woodhausen says there is it was Fulk Greville who promoted the myths that his friend had dispensed with thigh armour because the marshal of the camp, Sir William Pelham, had done so, and that as he was being carried from the field at Zuthven, he gave the contents of his bottle to a dying soldier with the, word, with the words, thy necessity is yet greater than mine. Um, and that's the version of Sydney enshrined in um, P.B. Shelley's work, Adonais, which I don't know anything about. But when, when he's talking about gourd thigh and selflessness, mm. it's that this, this giving away this, this, this drink to a soldier whose uh, need is greater, um, and the, the thigh is the injury that, that made him uh, die. Um, and I, I mean, I think, I, I think it was good that we mentioned kind of the dedication to, to a Sydney scholar at the start, because what that biography has pointed out to us is like this idea of selflessness. Okay, maybe it's characteristic of Sydney in general, I'm not sure, but that's just a myth. Like if you're a serious 16th century poetry person, you would know really well that that's just kind of a later myth. It's not really something that can be authenticated by, by early documents. Oh, um, I see. So, so for us, we'd put kind of selflessness in inverted commas there because, or, or rather a 16th century scholar would be thinking of selflessness in inverted commas because they know it's part of a myth about Sydney rather than any right. truth. Yeah. Yeah, and it, there's sort of on 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 the sort of the author's side of the poem. Then it gives us a kind of playfulness, I guess, with that, yeah. that academic community, um, with like the sort of the reader side of the poem, who for whom among whom maybe some people are really really up on Sydney, maybe some people like us are less up on Sydney, um, where you'd. You, you know, you just, you could, you could obviously think of these in, in, in whatever ways you like. Um, the other thing that maybe is just, just worth pointing out is that word matachin, which um, I had to look up. So that's the phrases there, and beware Zuthven and the penman's matachin suddenly undone. Uh, and uh, the, the OED gives us the Matachin as a 16th century sword dance related to the Morris dance, performed by dancers in extravagant costume and representing a fight or duel. And uh, it is actually a, a word that does come up in, in the Arcadia and the OED gives the example of the Arcadia um, where, where Sydney writes, whoever saw a Matachin dance to imitate fighting, this was a fight that did imitate the Matachin for they being but three that fought Everyone had two adversaries. Uh, and now I've read that out again. I wish we'd explored, we've explored that a little bit more. Uh, mm -hmm. So the Matachin imitates fighting and in the Arcadia, they're doing a fight that, the fight that imitates the dance. So it's the dance should imitate the fight, but here for Sydney, the fight imitates the dance. And we have a poem that the points imitates <laughs> language like early modern language like the yesternight at the start and okay so so the the, the pen man's so yeah it feels like there's a few things we need to pick up on here so the gourd thine selflessness that's the the mythology yes. 
the, the penman's matachin suddenly undone. Maybe we're now talking about, um, you know, something like that letter that we read at the start, the penman's dance, yes. penman's performance. Yes. Yeah, you can suddenly see through the penman's performance. Um, or it's, you know, it's the, the, the possibility of it continuing has suddenly been removed. Um, but this stanza also seems to be like, on this reading, which maybe I didn't see before, is the is this whole stanza like going back to the premonition from the first stanza? That's, I mean, that's how I read it. I think that this beware Zupfen Zupfen is the is the premonition. But I guess if you read it like that, then what's interesting is is that we, then we have this line break um, and the penman's matachin. So on the one hand, we can read that line as joined to beware Zupfen. But we can also read it as a kind of start of something else. So Beware Zupfen is the premonition yeah. break and the penman's performance is suddenly undone. So almost we've got, so it's just to help the readers at home, <laughs> uh, Beware Zupfen is just a single line, no punctuation, but then the next line and the penman's matching suddenly undone. Mm -hmm. it's, I think yeah, you, you pointed this out to me before that like our in inclination is just to read this as one voice, but there's real potential here for sort of hearing different voices. So maybe yeah. the candle is saying, beware's us then. Yeah. But maybe as a kind of response to that, one's thinking, or the pen, the candles of Pembroke or someone else is thinking, ah, oh, well, if Zuthven's a problem, the penman's matachin will be suddenly undone. Yeah. I think there's as well, I'm not quite sure if I can get there, but beware's Zuthven. Is, is this premonition that's like a personal premonition, right? But we hear it, the reader is, is like, is privy to, to it. And mm. it's at that point, following this, that the penman's matachin, which, you know, we, can, we could even stretch in, in the other way and say, is, is this poem, is, is Howe's performance of the poem is suddenly undone? Because it, it's at that point that the reader is brought in and hears this premonition. Yeah. I don't know if that's a stretch. I'm just trying to figure out the Penzance Matachin, because so like the Matachin is a is a dance that imitates a fight. Mm. If you're a if you're doing a Penman's Matachin, are you doing are you it does your writing imitate a fight? Are you are you doing writing that imitates fighting? Are you doing a dance that imitates writing? Oh, you, I see. <laughs> like what are you what are you imitating if you're a penman? And and also Penman, you know, obviously we're thinking about authorship and oh, this is Sydney, right? Talking about Penman, but suggests a scribe as well, suggests someone who's paid to write, not necessarily an author, but um, someone who's copying texts out, which was big big business in the sixteenth century. Which makes me think back to um, whatever account we have of Sydney and whatever happened on that battlefield. Presumably there were. I don't really know how it worked. Presumably there were scribes keeping score um, and, and writing stuff down as it happened. <laughs> I'm not really sure Maybe. how, how Maybe. that worked. I also, I also just feel like, I, I feel like we're missing something. I feel like there's a reference here that we haven't quite got to. I feel like Beware Zuthven, I feel like and I, I'm, I bet I'm not pronouncing that right. And it's, it's looking really embarrassing, by the way. Um, but I feel like there must be just some little thing that 
is is going on here that I'm I'm not quite picking up on. Was there a letter sent at home to say, yeah, don't go, go. Or, or you know, is are there, are there letters saying you know Philip don't go? Um, is there something there? And maybe maybe it's maybe it's just what we're seeing, but I don't know. Yeah, I feel like there's a link there that I'm not quite picking up, which is frustrating. No, and the chronology is is like confusing and weird as well that we have the premonition after <laughs> we know about the premonition. Listen, we have the content of the premonition after we know about it, and and we already know that Philip Sidney's dead. I don't know the just the 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 kind of the play, but the play between the different. Um, I want to use that phrase, phrase scenes of reading again, but it's not quite right. <laughs> but oh, I'm just I keep thinking, I keep going back to that, that phrase of fizzled premonition. And like, it seems as if the premonition is this candle, like refusing to light. There's something almost supernatural. Yes. Is, that, is that the idea that, um, you know, I was trying to light my candle, but it wouldn't light and I couldn't understand it. And that's how I knew that yes, don't go into battle. Going to die. Um, so I don't know how that suddenly becomes translated to, you know, a clearer, a clearer statement now. Or maybe you could just assume that if you know that that Phil's over there, then. Um, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. What what is initially a fizzled premonition is suddenly this like super crystal clear. But where's that phone? <laughs> That's what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess but the crystal clear where's that then contrasts with the the reflective stuff, doesn't it? Mm. Um, and I'm also noticed that we've got sort of two two standards that are marked by like an and in the second or third line. Yeah. What was the status of the ampersand in early modern <laughs> times? Oh yeah, okay, it's an ampersand, not an and. Um, no use... comment. No comment. No, they. <laughs> oh, yeah, they did. They 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 definitely. I can't think of the top of my head. They definitely had an ampersand equivalent. Um, whether they had that exact figure, I, I can't remember the top of my head. But we're not gonna we're not gonna get caught on that. Let's let's try let's try the next stanza. Oh, this is so frustrating, isn't it, Lucy? Because I feel like everyone's got we got so much good stuff out of it, and then like at the end we're sort of just falling down at the last hurdle when we're trying to make it make sense. Maybe today what we need to do is go back at the end and read it through and just see if we can come to a cohesive thing. Let's try the third stanzas, which is reading is of reaching, a sister's grief, handspans groped across the dark. So four lines, but there's a, between the first two, there's a kind of, a bit, not a big gap, but the reading is, that's one line on the left-hand side, and then a reaching second line on the right-hand side. So we've got like on the page, reaching, you know, we're talking about reaching and reading, and here it is on the page as well. Um, four max, four matches content, right? Yeah. And this stanza is such a gear change from the other two, both in well, I guess like in in terms of in terms of tone. Uh, we suddenly, if you know, we were like squeezing out um, metaphors for reading and writing in those first two stanzas and then by the third one you like have it from from the off reading is a is a reaching but again that's that 
Yeah, I mean, maybe when I first went on a quick read, uh, you know, it feels like a reaching a sister's grief, but actually it feels like it's offering two definitions of reading. Yes. One, reading is a reaching. You've got to know that. Number two, reading is a sister's grief. Yeah, well, reading is uh, reading is um, reaching a sister's grief, i.e. reading is like um, experience, having empathy for someone else's experiences or experiencing someone else's grief and pain. Yeah. Hand spans groped across the dark, and okay, and that's and it's nice to have that. So it's nice to feel like we're getting somewhere. Um, <laughs> nice to have that word dark because it takes us back to the first stanza. So I agree with you that there's a, there's a different register there, and it's almost like you've got two two stanzas narrating the very immediate experience, but then the third stanza it feels like we're zooming out. You know, we're in the hands of the poet. We're in the hands of the the narrator. Whatever whatever word you want to use to describe that. That, that that source um, where we're reflecting on the the reading that's happening and while I felt confused about whether that first paragraph first stanza was like reading or writing and maybe I'm right maybe I'm right to be confused but yeah. we are we're now saying okay this is all this poem's all about reading you know yeah we're talking about reading all along <laughs> here's the meaning in the third stanza um, and and this is the stanza as well that that, um, that in a way brings us back to the Sydney letter because it because we're thinking about reading as an intimate experience with another i.e the hand the handspans like holding hands in the dark yeah. <laughs> sounds like a terrible song lyric right and I, I guess sort of yeah like I feel I feel like sort of talking about touch talking about hands that's kind of one of these topics isn't it like um oh isn't reading a bit like touching um and I, I i think there's more to it than that um because it's because there's this because it's not about it's not no it's not about touching maybe that's why why i do like it is that reading is a reaching um is that it's it's finding an orientation for your mind for finding an orientation for your grief finding a direction to to grope in now i've said grope i can't unhear the the full valences of the word but um uh, you know those handspans groped across the dark you, you you're trying your best to get back to this then scene or, or some contact yeah. and it's, it's not going to happen but i think you're you're right to think about about touch though as well and that and that sense and how important that sense is for reading because of what we we're thinking about in the first stanza with um when you were talking about the experience of reading early modern texts and like, you know, you have seen the warped pages and I imagine like Howe's own experience of, of that sort of scholarship are those like, the, the reading is probably absolutely connected to the experiences of touching pages and feeling whatever the pages are made out of and so on. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So hands, hands bands groped, it's, I, I, I was imagining that as like a purely metaphorical sort of mental idea for what you're doing when you're, when you're looking at words on the page. But no, there is something very, very tactile in that. And, and it, it's worth just highlighting now that that poem, Human Marks, mm. um, which is all about, which I th yeah, I think we probably won't be able to go into a lot of detail now, um, but that's all about um, the, 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 the material text, opening a book and seeing medieval writers putting um, these little sort of markers in the margins, like um, 
like hands. Uh, they they're often called manicules when when old readers put these hands in margins to um, draw attention to particular bits. And that particular poem, Human Marks, is like weirdly sexual, isn't it? It's like, yeah. in fact, it's hilariously uh, sexual language, um, talking about um, the fringe dweller of early manuscripts whose jotted peripheral fists sprung with an admonitory digit lace the tanned margins of our most cankered and flame buckled books, a fervid injunction to look. And actually, I'm glad I read that out now because that, that does sort of, I wouldn't like to say fit, but it, it, it matches some of the discussions we've been having that, um, you know, when, when she's, you're absolutely right. She, she, she is making use of her, her experience as a, as, a, as an academic reader, yeah. think about the cankered and flame buckled books. That's not an experience you'd get from reading modern editions. Um, so hand spans groped. There's a, you know, maybe there's a, there's an overtone of writing these little hands in the margins of the Arcadia. And I'm, I'm sure many people did that. We, we could look up the research article yeah. to find out. Um, so, so weirdly there's that, but weirdly that then reduces it to something quite prosaic and mundane that something you just do it's not like emotive um or maybe it's always emotive maybe that's the the point that as mundane as writing margin marginalia in is it's, it's yeah, that it, i think that it has that it has a kind of the, an intimacy which more often than than not is it, it, or not more often than not, that can be erotically charged. Yeah. That you're connecting with someone both like intellectually and because of the uh, of the context in that you're presumably bent over some manuscript tracing someone else's fing fingerprints and so on. That 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 it is, um, yeah. That it, it, it's a, a erotic experience. Like I just heard you talking about bending over a manuscript. Like, I know, I saw your face, I didn't mean to phrase it like that. The thing is, like, I mean, oh, like, have you ever been to a rare books library? It's like the least erotic thing. Oh, totally, I completely agree. Like, yeah. that's, a, that's a wild thing. And um, that's why maybe why Human Marks is kind of so funny is however, like, intimate you can, whatever intimate stories you can imagine, <laughs> the shy going into Cambridge University Library or like any college library and looking Ooh, at some books. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's important work and you know, it's important to do it, but like sexy, no, it's not. Um, <laughs> all right, let's try, let's try and get a handle on these last two lines. Yeah. So we've had this nice little stanza about reading and we can put that in our kind of commonplace book of, of metaphors for reading from contemporary poets. But the last two, it's not really a stanza even, it's just two lines mm -hmm. separated out with a blank line between, um, which say, Veni, Veni, dying is such thirsty work. Which really throws me, like the the veni veni we we know from, well I, I guess we're helped by the note in the back of the book, but also by the the research we know that's the Latin come come from Sydney's letter, which as we were thinking about is um, is is an intimate moment between Sydney and the the person who's writing the letter to, but dying is such thirsty work. Um, it, it's so different to the to the rest of the poem right yeah and I think what 
I can't get past this idea that it's like, where, where do you, it feels very familiar line, but yeah. also very like, what, what does that actually mean? Where do you say, oh, that's really thirsty work. And I think the one, the example that I've, I've told you about before is like, um, when, I, when, <laughs> when a dog comes in from a walk and like, she just like drinks loads of water, like, she makes this massive noise slurping up water. And then like, I might say, oh, that was, that was thirsty work, wasn't it? <laughs> like, and it's like, what, why is that funny? I'm not even sure um, why it's funny because, because it feels like she hasn't, because it's not yes. thirsty work. Exactly, that's why it's funny. And that's, and we had the same senses in this line, right? Because dying is not thirsty work. And, and I guess that, that makes us, we're forced then to think back to Sydney giving his flask to the other soldier who was presumably dying on the battlefield. Um, and it makes us, I guess, question that, that encounter between the two of them, that it's clear that this dying soldier didn't need um, the flask, therefore Sydney giving it to him is this, like performance of selflessness rather than him actually needing a drink of water. Okay, but but also the word thirsty, you, you know, when we're talking about literally this period, that's the kind of word that can really easily become sexualized, isn't it? You know, it's, it's yeah. about want, wanting a drink, but it's also around, about sexual desire as well. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there's a suggestion there of that, um, uh, that male-male friendship that's yeah goes beyond being male-male friendship, but becomes a, a sexual relation as well. That this, this mythology of the battlefield is taken to be like a, I, I don't know, presume, I presume if I read the 19th century biographies of Sydney, that would, that would be where it was. But, um, you know, a, a sign of his great magnanimity and his, his, his masculinity and how, how nice he was. But maybe he was sleeping with that soldier and wanting to give him a, give him a drink. Um, you know, as a token, as a token of their, the thirsty work they'd be doing. Work they've been up to, yeah, totally. So it's yeah, it's 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 such a funny line, and like, it, 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 this those two lines together, which are just such tiny little fragments, they seem they seem unrelated almost to anything that's happened before. But maybe it just makes me feel like, you know, that's the whole way the whole poem work has has worked is by giving us little bits and pieces that we're. Um, we're we're reaching and and pushing into a narrative um they're just about hang together one way or another we're looking for a magic key that maybe isn't there and maybe it's beyond our work today to kind of figure out like the narrative that we're really happy with or the way of navigating those those stanzas that we're really content with um but it, it offers us various courses through its journey i think it's fair to say yeah, like in some ways it's a kind of perfect ending, I guess, because it it really feels like the door is closed in your face at that point. And there is there's like some joke happening there, either between either in the context of Sydney and his personal relationships, or in the context of um the Countess of Pembrokes, or in how how's encounter or engagement with Gavin Alexander and the, the literature and the scholarship of the period. It's at that point that, that I we can't it feels like I can't go any any further with it. Yeah, I think that's the risk. I mean, it felt like when when, when we were talking about um, Veronica Forrest Thompson, mm -hmm. that um, you feel like there's a joke going on here. At and your expense. 
it, yeah, it might just be on you. So <laughs> let's just um, be careful and uh, not not commit to too closely to anything. Yeah. I wonder, maybe just to wrap this up, because we've got two quite short poems today and we haven't done this before, but um, maybe we could just, we could read out the letter and then the poem for a final time. And yeah. if we have like a minute's worth of final thoughts, we could say them. Um, and if not, then, um, you know, we can, we can bring to a conclusion. So maybe this time I could read, I could read the Sydney letter and you could read the, the Sarah Howe. Um, sure. Does that sound all right? Yeah. Okay, so this is uh, Sydney's letter. Weya, mine, come, come. I am slipping away from life and I want you. Neither alive nor dead will I be ungrateful. I cannot write more, but beg you urgently to hurry. Farewell. Arnhem, yours, Philip Sydney. The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia, P.S. 1554-1586. Yesternight the candle scarcely struck, and yet its fizzled premonition held, sweet captive, to a warped page that will never love ink. Beware Zupfen, and the penman's matachin suddenly undone, all gored thigh and selflessness. Reading is a reaching, a sister's grief, Handspans groped across the dark. Veni, veni, dying is such thirsty work. I enjoyed that. I feel like I'd be happy if we just leave with reading is a reaching. Yeah. Maybe I think, yeah, I think that's a good ending. And maybe we've done all the reaching we should do for today. Definitely. No, yeah. Um, Unless there's anything more you want to add, I don't want to cut you off. No, I, th I, th I think we'll save it for another day. Okay, fantastic. All right, well, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much, Lucy, for spending this hour talking all about Sarah Howe and Philip Sidney. I think it's been really, really interesting. Um, hopefully we'll get you back another time for some more interesting early modern action. Um, but uh, for now, thank you everyone for listening and see you next time. <laughs>